0: To the New Testament in your Bibles, to the book of Ephesians, um, or open up your smartphones and pull out to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be starting a new sermon series this morning in the book of Ephesians. Well, one of the most basic human questions that we all face is Am I loved? Am I loved? It's a question that we all face, whether rich or poor, male or female, no matter our culture, race, or ethnicity, no matter our political affiliation or our religious belief or non-belief, no matter your job, young or old, married or single, we're all asking this question over and over again. Am I loved? We ask it when we feel the joy of life, But we have this nagging sense that that joy won't last. We ask it in the loneliness of life, in moments of pain and brokenness. We ask it when we are succeeding, as we question if we are loved on the basis of our success. And we certainly ask it when we're failing, like will anyone continue to love me We ask it when we think of our past and the trauma we have experienced, whether great or small, and we ask it when we think of our future and the uncertainty of our lives. We're really constantly asking this question over and over again, and you could argue it's one of the chief questions that guides our behavior, our motivations in life. Sometimes our good behavior or our motivation to to act a certain way that we deem good is because we are afraid of being unloved. And sometimes our bad behavior is a result of being unloved, of feeling unloved. And sometimes our bad behavior in one setting is deemed good by others in a different setting, so we cling to that because we're looking for a place to be loved. We're looking for a place that will accept us and love us. Where can we find an answer to this question? Am I loved? Well, certainly the scriptures teach us much about this. 1 John 4, 8 says, But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. For God is love. But what does it mean to say that God is love? and how does that actually affect our lives? That's the question we're going to be looking at today, and it comes from a deep and mysterious place of theology, the Trinity, the Trinity. We're going to be looking over the summer. I know that I said we were going to go back and finish Exodus, and I'm going to say it again, but we will eventually finish Exodus, but over the summer, I wanted us to, to uh, have something that we could uh, study together over the summer as we finish the book of Acts and jump into together. And so we're going to be looking at the whole book of Ephesians this summer uh, with the subtitle The Glory of the Triune God. And so one of the things where we're going to look at and see is that this understanding of who God is as a trinity comes out in the book of Ephesians. God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, comes out in the book of Ephesians. And each week, we're going to be going over a new aspect of the Trinity, looking at how a new aspect of the triune God and his glorious nature and work. And so as we enter into the book of Ephesians today, we're going to be looking at the triune God and his love. Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, the triune God and his love. Now, the book of Ephesians, we'll kind of unpack as we go some of the background and historical information, but remember, we just went through the book of Acts, right? And so Paul is in Ephesus for quite a long time. And so because Paul's in Ephesus for quite a long time, knows the people pretty well, we think that this letter is probably a circular letter that was meant to be passed to different places because there's not a lot of deep personal language in it. And Paul spent a lot of time with the Ephesians, and so we would expect that Paul would have a great deal of very personal connections to write to the Ephesians. That's why some scholars reject Paul as author, Um, but that's a new idea to reject Paul as author. It's not not a helpful idea, and there's not really a lot of historical backing behind it, Um, but it's pretty popular to reject Paul as author of everything in the New (laughs) Testament, and so uh, that's just kind of like the way things go. But... We believe Paul wrote this, and we believe Paul wrote it from prison. He mentions being in prison several times. So likely Paul is writing this from Rome. So from where we ended in Acts, right? Paul is in Rome under house arrest, and he writes this letter to the Ephesians and to other churches in that area. And it is a letter that doesn't really contain like a chief problem. You remember a few years ago, we went through the book of Galatians, And Galatians has these big issues going on, right? The church is trying to figure out who's a part of the church. And do Gentiles coming into the church, do they need to be circumcised and become Jewish to be a part of the church, to be a part of the gospel? And Paul's writing to that specific question. In Ephesians, we don't have that. We don't have like this big, significant problem. We have general issues that would happen to all churches, and it's more of a general encouragement of how to walk together in the faith. So it's a great follow-up to the book of Acts, right? The church has been established in the book of Acts, and now what does it look like for us to live that out together? And so that's why we're gonna walk through this book together. And one of the things that's gonna pop out all over the place is this idea of God as triune. Now, the Trinity is a pretty complex topic. Anyone wanna come up here and teach on it just for a moment? Like, (laughs) it's a pretty complex topic, right? We, in going through the New City Catechism with our kids, right, we taught it in children's church and in Sunday school. Cammy, it was pretty easy to teach, right? You got it? Okay, so um, I'm gonna teach you basically what we teach our kids, right? which is basically all we can definitively say about the Trinity. And it comes in this diagram here, all right? So if, you, if, if anyone's like, ah, the Trinity, is so complex, just say it's a triangle and a circle, come on triangle and a circle. It's, it's pretty easy, right? So I'm going to give you this overview, and then we're going to walk into this, right? Okay. Now, this is a, a, a complex theological uh, uh, doctrine that has been developed over time. Now, some would argue that because it's been developed over time, it's its not really a biblical idea. The word Trinity doesn't show up in the Bible, um, but, but that's not the case, right? It's simply the word Trinity Uh, is simply describing the way in which God has already revealed himself in Scripture, trying to come up with language to understand how is it that God has described himself. And so on this chart here, you've got Father, Son, and Spirit on the edges of the triangle. Now, the lines in between connect Father, Son, and Spirit, and there's this language, is God. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. All right, that's what we can say about the Trinity. We have one God in three persons. So the Father is God, the Son, Jesus, is God, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is God. Now there's another really important factor here. This is the circle that surrounds it, right? The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father, right? The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son, and the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. So they are distinct persons, one God. Now, what's important to note in this is these are not three manifestations or modes that show up at different times, It's not like water, ice, and steam. You may have heard this analogy. Um, It's not a super helpful analogy. I understand the the point of it, but one molecule of water cannot be water, ice, and steam at the exact same time, right? It can't be all three at the same time, and that's why it, it breaks down as an analogy because God is Father, Son, and Spirit at the same time and yet distinct persons. There is no analogy that is perfect because God is unlike us. He is unlike us in this way. We are made in his image as persons, meaning we have characteristics like him and meaning that that we are also distinct from him. He is very much like us in some ways and very much unlike us in other ways. The Trinity is a mysterious reality. Um, a book that I uh, would recommend to you all, is, it's called Delighting in the Trinity. This is probably the best introduction to the Trinity I've ever read. It's by a guy named Michael Reeves. Look at how thin that is. Like, come on. Most books on the Trinity are like this. Like, they're real thick, right? So it's a great book. Really, really helpful. But Michael Reeves says this about the Trinity. It's a longer quote, but I think it's really helpful for us. He says, God is a mystery, But not in the alien abduction, things that go bump in the night sense. Certainly not in the who can know why bother sense. God is a mystery in that who he is and what he is like are secrets. Things we would never have worked out by ourselves. But this triune God has revealed himself to us. God is not something that we can figure out. We wouldn't have figured this out on our own had he not introduced himself to us. Thus, the Trinity is not some piece of inexplicable apparent nonsense like a square circle or an interesting theologian. A little self-burn there by Michael Reeves. Rather, because the triune God has revealed himself, we can understand the Trinity. That is not to say that we can exhaust our knowledge of God, comprehend and wrap our brains around him, simply cramming in a few bits of information before moving on to some other doctrine. But to know the Trinity is to know God, an eternal and personal God of infinite beauty, interest, and fascination. The Trinity is a God we can know and forever grow to know better. What Reeves is saying here is that the reality of our experience of God is only because he has revealed himself to us. Right? There are things about you that you don't reveal to everyone, right? That no one would figure out on their own unless you were to share that and reveal that with someone. God is like that. God has declared who he is and shown us who he is in the scriptures. And so to understand and to wrap our minds around the Trinity is to seek to know him because it's the way he has revealed himself. And we see this from the very beginning of the Old Testament. We see God the Father declaring, let us make man in our image. God is already speaking in such a way that showcases that there is a a multiple of persons in the Godhead. And so this is really foundational to everything that we believe about Scripture. Scripture. And it is the unique thing about Christianity in the world. No other religion or religious belief or philosophical idea has this idea of a triune God. It is the thing that is unique to Christians. And it is uh, sad for us that we don't have a more robust understanding of it because it's so foundational to who we believe God to be. And so that's what I want to hope to do this summer is really walk through and, and point out the subtle ways in which the scriptures showcase this. And remember, we saw this in the book of Acts, right? When uh, Ananias and Sapphira, you remember them? They're the couple that lied to the church about selling a piece of property and then they dropped dead. So, you know, don't lie to the church. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, was, uh, it was a pretty intense moment, right? And they... Peter says to them, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he says later, you lied to God, not to man. He ascribes divinity to the Holy Spirit. And we see that throughout the whole book of Acts, right? That God is at work throughout the book of Acts, and God is at work in, uh, through the Holy Spirit. And so we've seen this throughout, and what we want to do is continue to see this in the subtle ways in which it shows up throughout the book of Ephesians. All right. It's a long introduction to the idea of the Trinity. And now we're going to jump into the book of Ephesians. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. See, this is why we think this is important to say that it's written by Paul, right? It says it right there. (laughs) Um, But scholars will look at that and be like, actually, this is someone writing um, later on in the teaching of Paul and ascribing it to Paul to give it authority and weight, um, now, that is a somewhat common practice in the ancient world. That is true. The problem is that the church, every time, rejected documents like that. This isn't the only document that, that people think that that is true of. There's others. Uh, the, the Gospel of Peter is one that doesn't find its way into the New Testament, and it was rejected because they knew Peter didn't write it, right? Right? So the fact that this made it into the New Testament is actually really, really important because we believe Paul actually wrote it. We don't, uh, the idea that the, the apostles in the early church would be like, yes, we take lying documents to ascribe a to a, a, a God of truth is kind of, it's a problem, right? So like, that's why we believe Paul wrote that and that's why we believe it's pretty important. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us, along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mystery, mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so that we would praise and glorify him. Glory, glory, glory. There is so much in this section packed in here. But what I wanna do this morning is focus in on God's love, the triune God and his love. I wanna focus in on how do we know the answer to this question, am I loved? And there are a lot of ways that Paul answers that question in this text so many ways that God has described to us how he loves us. God has loved us, and I want to look at and unpack some of the ways in which he he does that. So first, God the Father chose us, Ephesians 1, 4. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Before the world was created, God chose us. God's love is specific, it makes choices. As uh, an author, Greg Forster, has said, when you love humanity, in quotes, not only do you not really deal with humanity, but you don't really deal with love. Real love is personal. Real love is doing concrete things for concrete individuals, right? It's really easy to say, I love people. I love all people. You love that person? No, 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 I don't love that person, right? Because that person has problems. That person is specific. That person is one that I have conflict with. So what you mean by I love all people or humanity is you don't love anyone. <laughs> because love is personal. It's specific. So when the scripture says, even before the, uh, he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God is speaking of individual people that he has said, I love you. I, before I made the world, I decided that I love you. Folks, this is earth-shattering. We could just camp out here the rest of the morning and not go any further to describe any other way in which God has loved us. This is what we mean when we say the triune God is love, that God is love. That before he created the world, he saw, he knew, he loved, and he chose you. Before he created the world, he saw you, who you would be. He knew you. He loved you in Christ. That means he he, he knew you completely, right? He chose you to be holy and blameless in Jesus. Well, how do we become holy and blameless in Jesus? Only through the gospel, only through Jesus dying on our behalf and then Resurrecting for us to know God, right? And then we're transformed from one degree of glory to another, right? We are transformed to be more and more like Jesus one little bit at a time. So if He chose us to be holy and blameless, you know what that means? He knew that we were unholy and very much full of blame when He chose us. When He chose us, He knew our sins and our flaws. He knew our rebellion. He knew what that love would cost him. And yet, he still chose you in Christ. If you are trusting in Jesus, this is incredible. The foundation of God's love for you is not the moment that you trusted in Jesus or met Jesus, it goes before the foundations of the world. What Paul is saying is, guys, you wanna know if you're loved? Look back as far as you can. God already loved you then. And then further back. Imagine as far back as you can. And further back than that, God already loved you. He already knew you. He already chose you. He already was at work specifically. His love is personal and specific. He chose you. Well, that's not all he did. Paul goes on. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. God the Father adopted us. God the Father adopted us. This is the glorious love of adoption, right? Taking someone who was not yours and saying, you are now mine in my family. Someone who was unloved perhaps is now being adopted in to be loved. If we want to know if we are loved by God, imagine you being of a different family and now God has said, no, 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 you are going to be a part of my family. I'm going to adopt you in and I'm going to treat you like I treat my very own son. That's what we're gonna, we're gonna continue to unpack this, how God treats us like he treats his son. And the glory of that. But God has adopted us into his very family. Ephesians 1.13. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news, that God saves you. The other thing that God has done that Paul shows us of God's love for us is that he has saved us. Now, throughout the book of Ephesians, we're going to see more and more about this idea of God saving us. And that salvation in the book of Ephesians is more than just justification, right? A lot of times when we talk about salvation, we talk about justification, that we are declared to be righteous before God because of the work of Jesus. We escape the penalty of hell and the penalty for our sin because of the work of Jesus. Now, salvation is no less than that. Don't hear me wrong. Salvation is no less than that. But it's actually far, far more than that. We're also saved into a family, right? We're adopted into a family. But you know what? We're adopted into a family, not just like me and the father, right? We're adopted into a whole family with brothers and sisters. That's part of salvation. And Paul's gonna unpack that in Ephesians. We are saved for the purpose of, of declaring this and living this out as God's children, being lights in the world. We are saved not just for this present reality, but also for the world to come, the new heavens and new earth. All of that is packed into this idea of salvation. And so we're gonna see more and more of that throughout. But how has God saved us? In 11, he says, furthermore, because we are united with Christ, We have received an inheritance from God. We are united with Jesus, the Son. That's how God has saved us. If you are a Christian, you're trusting in Jesus and him alone for salvation. You have been united with Jesus so that what is true of Jesus becomes true of you. You are united with him so that God treats you as though you are his very own son or daughter. You are adopted into his family through your union with Jesus. God has saved us by uniting us to Jesus. And he saved us by purchasing us with the blood of Jesus. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Paul is just layering layer on top of layer of this is reason you should know that you are loved God before the foundations of the world chose you and loved you knowing you're a sinner so what was he going to do about that he sent his very own son to purchase you by his blood to forgive your sins and then to unite you to him and then to adopt you into his family you are so secure It's not just that God had this great idea, like I love these people, but they're sinners and I'm holy. I'm also gonna accomplish how to get rid of that problem. I'm gonna make them holy in Jesus. I'm gonna forgive their sins. I'm gonna bring them close. I'm gonna adopt them into my family. What does he say further? He says, "Uh, he is so rich in kindness. Oh, sorry. Further, he says, Uh, after God saves you, and when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own. God has identified you as his own. He identifies himself with you. It's not just that you're adopted into the family to spend the rest of your existence hidden away from the world. No, God says those ones, those people are mine identified you as his own. He is proud to have you as his own. Those people there, those ones are mine. And how do we know that? Because he gave us his Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. God gave us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to mark us out as his own and to give us a guarantee of the inheritance that he will give us. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised. See how all of these things are intertwined, right? An inheritance is what you give your children, right? How do we get access to an inheritance? Because we're united to the Son and adopted into the family. And how do we know we're gonna get this inheritance? The glorious nature of this inheritance, right, is the new heavens and new earth, right? We will inherit the earth. It's not a small thing. This is a big inheritance. How do we know we have access to it? Because the Spirit of God dwells in us. Because God has said, I'm not going to be distant from you. I will be your God and you will be my people. I'm going to dwell among you and actually in you. I'm going to fill you with my Spirit. Uh, In his book, uh, Communion with God, another great book that I would recommend. Uh, This is by John Owen. John Owen. Uh, one of my favorite authors, and he talks about how do we commune with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How do we commune with the triune God? He says this, our access to God in order that we might have communion with him, relationship with him, is through Christ, by the Spirit, to the Father. Each person of the Godhead is here having a distinct and separate part to play in accomplishing the purpose of God's will revealed in the gospel. Our relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. We have access to God by the Holy Spirit living in us, and we direct our praise to the Father. You see, the richness of of understanding the Trinity and how it works and how we commune with God is really important because it helps us understand how he is at work in all of these ways. That God is at work, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. Now, this is awesome. I mean, God has loved us incredibly. But Paul uses even more incredible language, right? He says, he has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has spared no expense. You are not just like a utility where it's like, okay, I know that you need to be saved, but we're not gonna be, I mean, we're not gonna be extravagant. No, God has said, I am going to be extravagant, wasteful, unnecessary. Have you ever thought about this, how God is unnecessary in so many ways, right? On Friday, Whitney and I were able to go to a botanical garden, and it was like, we saw some plants that were just like, this is so cool and super weird looking, and so unnecessary. Why such beauty for something that serves no purpose other than to declare and showcase beauty? It's unnecessary. God's love is the same way. It's over and above, extravagant. He spares no expense. He owns the universe. He doesn't have to hold back. He's not like saving for something. You know, like, well, I would spend more money on you, but I got to save for something else. No, like, all in. All in. My entire resources. The whole universe is at my disposal. And what am I gonna do with all of that? I'm gonna shower kindness on you. I'm gonna shower kindness on you. This is incredible. And it's the overflow of his love. And it's the overflow of his love within himself. Check this out. So we praise God. Right, he has has showered us with kindness. This is the very next verse. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. Now his dear son, this this translation in the New Living Translation uh, doesn't quite capture it. It's, It's God's beloved son. It's the son whom God loves, whom he delights in, right? There's this crazy reality that we're looking into here. That God the Father delights more than anything else in God the Son. More than anything else in the universe, God the Father delights in his Son. And what do we get access to? Well, Jesus tells us in John 17, his prayer to the Father, he says, O righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed you to them and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them and I will be in them. Just, just sit with this for a moment. Your love, Father, for me will be in them and I will be in them. And what has he just promised? If you're tracking with the, the, the upper room discourse, what has he just promised? the Holy Spirit is going to live in you. So, let's put this all together, all right? So, Paul says in Ephesians, you are getting an inheritance. And the guarantee of that inheritance is the Holy Spirit. How do I know I'm gonna get an inheritance, right? How how do you know you're gonna get an inheritance from your earthly parents? Well, hopefully, because they love you, right? (laughs) Right? Like, That that, that would be the case, right? If you have a really bad relationship with your earthly parents, you might be skeptical if you're gonna get an inheritance, right? What what Paul is saying here is we know we're gonna get an inheritance from God because we have the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit communicate to us? Well, it communicates Jesus' presence and the love that the Father has for Jesus in us. We are are invited in the gospel to join in the dance of the Trinity. To be saved, to be united to Jesus, to be loved by God, is to be invited into the love that the persons of the Trinity have shared for all eternity. This is the only way that God can be loved. If God is only loved because of his relationship to humans, and creation, then his love does not spring from within his own nature, right? If God is not triune, he cannot be described as love because love requires action and affection to another person, right? So if God has eternally been loving, he must eternally be loving someone. He's been eternally loving within the Trinity itself. The idea of the Trinity is so incredibly necessary if we want a God of love because he is loving in himself in the Godhead, loving himself. God does not love only in response. It's part of his very nature. And if if it's not the case, we're always gonna have uncertainty of love because it would be reactionary. Have I done enough? But if it's within his very own nature to be loving, then we can be certain of his love. If God is like a fountain, he simply overflows his character into creation, right? That is the nature of a fountain. A fountain is supposed to overflow. That's what it's supposed to do. And that's the nature of God. God is like a fountain. He's supposed to overflow his love and his character into creation and into us. This mysterious and glorious reality is hard to explain for sure and hard to understand, but it's the only thing that can answer the deepest longing of my soul. Is there really a place where I can be loved? Is love eternal and free or is it bound by my obedience or disobedience? Is it truly free? Then it must find its nature in him. Why does God do all of this? Why does God do all of this for us? Is it because of our worthiness or our value to him that we offer some sort of value to him? Or is it because he's bored and lacking in in and of himself that he needed some sort of creature to love? No. Like all great love, the motivation arises from the pleasure of love itself. What what does Paul say? God decided to adopt us into his family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. God's love for you arises because he simply loves you. He takes great joy and pleasure in loving you. John Owen again. The love of the Father is freely given to us. He loves us because he wanted to love us. He simply wanted to love you. When Whitney and I were on staff with Crew, another staff member, Nancy Bartolik, would always say, He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. That's the answer. He simply loves you because he loves you. There's no other way to describe it. it is greater than any fairy tale love. The Father's pleasure is to love us in Christ and unite us to him by the Spirit. The Son's pleasure is to die for us and be raised for us and to be united to us by the Spirit, to share his very inheritance as the Son with us and to bring us to the Father. It is his great pleasure to do so. It is the Spirit's pleasure to indwell you to bring God's presence into you and to seal you with the guarantee that you will receive this inheritance given by the Father, the inheritance of the Son. This is something we need to wrestle with because so often we act in our lives like we're unsure that God loves us. It causes us to be tentative in the world, tentative in our love for others because we're afraid of messing up. It causes us to be tentative in our prayers to God. It causes us to be tentative in running to him because of our sin. We're afraid to come to him and to confess our sin. We feel like we need to beat ourselves up a little bit before we come to him because of our sin. When in reality, it is God's great pleasure to love and save you. It brings him great joy. He wants to love you. The greatest need that you have in life is not to go do something. It's simply to understand that you are loved by God. You are loved by God. This is why one of my favorite passages in all of scripture is Zephaniah 3.17. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. When you're thinking of the difficult things that you're going through, the loneliness that you face, or the brokenness of your life, think about God's love for you, that God loves you so much that he takes delight in you, that he comes near to you in your brokenness. Right? Zephaniah, right? Zephaniah is a prophet. You know, Zephaniah writes to the people of God in the Old Testament. Anyone read the Old Testament? Were they good people or bad people? <laughs> right, They were screw-ups all the time. They were just like us. They screwed up all the time, over and over again. It was like, hey, don't do that. All right, Lord, let's go do that, right? All the time, he is a mighty savior. He's gonna take great delight in you. He's gonna come near to you. I want you to imagine in the moments where you feel unloved by God, I want you to imagine that God the Father is gonna come near to you, just you, and sing to you. We sing to God all the time here. This says that God sings to us. He wants to bring you near and sing over your life. If we get this, it will transform everything about how we live. If you know that the God of the universe loves you, extravagantly, dearly, in abundance, unnecessarily, sparing no expense, then you can walk into any situation and place and know that you are secure in the love of the triune God. And it will transform everything about your life. So, make it a point this week. If you're going to do anything as a Christian, Right? If you're going to do any duty as a Christian this week, don't let it be doing a bunch of things for somebody else. Let it be first and foremost. Let me not spend a day without knowing I am loved by God. Just wrestle with that. Like, at the end of the day, make sure you know, did I live my life today in such a way that I am loved by God, that I know I'm loved by God? And if you don't feel it, wrestle with Jesus until you do. Because there's hard days where we're not gonna feel it, right? Just like in any relationship, there's hard times where you're like, not sure that you love each other because it doesn't feel like it. So what do you lean on? Well, you lean on the commitment that you have made. Well, God has made a very costly commitment to you. And he did it before the foundations of the world, He said, you're mine. So, friends, let's soak in the love of the triune God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you needing your love. Needing your love, Lord. We desperately need to know that you, Father, love us. And we are so thankful that you do. Lord, now as we respond in song singing to you, Lord, if, if, if there's anyone here or watching online who, who needs to know your love, would you communicate to your spirit or by your spirit to them that you're singing over us? Even as we respond in song, you, Lord, delight to sing over us You just want to pick us up in your arms and sing to us to love us, to hold us near and dear. Lord, would you help us to know that? Lord Jesus, would you help us to know your love as the son who died for us and who gives us freely of your inheritance? And Spirit, would you animate our hearts to know the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father as our love to God, that we would experience and reflect that very love between Son and Father because of you living in us, Spirit. God, would you be glorified as we enjoy and love you and be loved by you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.